And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Today, we're starting a new season of the podcast focusing on the history of Christian missions. And we're going to look broadly at six or seven different eras in missions history. And then we're also going to sprinkle in a few podcast episodes specifically on individual missionaries and kind of looking at their lives and their contributions to mission work around the world. But we're going to kick off today by talking about apostolic missions. What did missions look like for the early apostles like Paul and some of the disciples of Jesus and those involved in the early church at that particular point in time? What are some things that we see in the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament and even some things maybe that we might be able to learn from them today? Our guest today is Dr. Rob Plummer. Dr. Plummer is a biblical scholar with a missionary heart, and he has served in a variety of different contexts around the world. He has written, co-written several different books and volumes. He is probably most widely known as a very effective teacher of Koine Biblical Greek. Students on our campus and off our campus online love studying with him. Dr. Plummer is the founding host of The Daily Dose of Greek, which is a very popular resource ministry geared towards pastors and theological students. And he personally is a friend of mine and a cherished colleague and really looking forward to having this conversation today. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for your kind introduction. Yeah. So why don't we start when we think about this idea of apostolic mission, why don't we just kind of start by trying to roughly define what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about apostolic missions? Yeah, I think it would depend on the person I'm talking to, actually. If they just said apostolic mission, they might be describing just faithful Christian missions, right? We want to have missions that are in the pattern of the apostles in the sense that we proclaim their gospel and we follow in their footsteps. And then you can think about aberrations of that. I'm sure with your time on the mission field, you probably met some people who called themselves apostles. I've had to deal with people in the past who view their mission as unique. But what you're talking about is really just the historical era, right? So the time when the eyewitnesses of Jesus that he specifically chose to initially proclaim his authoritative gospel and to write it down and for it to be canonical, we're talking about the era of the when the first apostles when the disciples were alive. And of course, the, the preeminent apostle we think of as the missionary apostle is the apostle Paul. That's great. Yeah, that's really, that's helpful. Nothing happens in a vacuum. There's always contextual realities, things that are going on at any point in human history. Yeah. As we think about this kind of apostolic era, we think about Christ, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, then his ascension. We think about some of the early things that happened in the book of Acts. Can you talk about some of the contextual realities that were at play in the Roman Empire during this time? 
Yeah, it's frequently noted how the providence of God had prepared for the rapid advance of the gospel. I mean, of course, God's power and purposes could prevail in any time period, in any culture or government. But you think about how, for example, the Greek language was the lingua franca, such a widespread area that the Apostle Paul could go and preach and teach in the Greek language. I I would compare it to, not in any kind of ethnocentric or nationalistic way, but just factually, in modern times, English is that way, right? I went and lived in East Asia, knowing about 10 words of the people that I was going to live among, but I taught English there and had a great opportunity to share the gospel, and just because everyone speaks English, you know? I was in Hong Kong once and saw, like, one person from Africa arguing with a person from Vietnam in English. You know, they're just so it's I think it's similarly not probably not to quite the same degree, but Greek was that for a large swath of the ancient world. And as well, Roman roads are legendary. Maybe you've seen these memes where people have a picture of a Roman road. They're like, why is my road outside my house have potholes in it? And here's a Roman road from 2000 years ago that looks like you could drive on it better. So you have roads, you have language, you have a relative. I mean, there are still bandits. You know, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about robbers. I mean, there's still safety issues, but it was relative freedom to travel. And in the providence of God, we just think about how that allowed then people to travel, take the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond. And yeah, it was a just amazing coalescence of cultural and historical factors with the coming of Christ. Yeah, that's good. You know, I want to kind of switch towards thinking about Paul and his mission strategy and some of the strategy of the early missionaries. Now, at the same time, I know that there are some some scholarly debate about how much was Paul really encouraging some of these churches to engage in cross-cultural mission, gospel expansion, these kinds of things. I know that you even have done some writing on that in your own dissertation. Can you talk some about the strategy of Paul and kind of the ways in which he was going about trying to accomplish this mission at this point in time? Yeah. I mean, I think about at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that his strategy is to preach where Christ has not been named, right? So he has a his vision, his strategy is to go to the unreached places. Also, but when we read in the book of Acts, he doesn't just start a beachhead for the gospel and and never come back. He circles back to these congregations, visits them. It's clear that he's training them because it reaches a point where he appoints leaders. He helps raise up leaders there. We know from his letters, he continues to correspond, instruct them, disciple them. And also in the book of Acts, we see that Paul is someone who is led by the Spirit. You know, his initial first missionary journey, the the group is praying in Antioch, and they're seeking God's will, his direction. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. So we see a sensitivity to the Spirit, a God-given vision. You know, he saw Jesus commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to do it to fulfill that commission. You know, nowhere does Paul say, I went to the major population centers because that's where people, you know, and all this guy, but it, it is noteworthy that he goes to the major city. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't start a rural camp ministry in Acts, right? We would, that'd be unusual if your goal is to go and reach as many people as possible. And it does seem he, he follows generally the main roads and thoroughfares, but at times, I think it's in Acts 16, he's wanting to go to Asia, it says the Holy Spirit 
<laughs> prevented us. So we don't know exactly how or why, but he was he was led by the Spirit. He was going to unreached areas. He was quick to rope in other people, co-workers, co-witnesses of the offering. He was you know bring, involving people in the mission financially and in co-laborship. The question that you alluded to is an interesting question. No one doubts that Paul wanted to take the gospel to the ends of earth and so delighted that it was being done. But the question is, what did he expect ordinary Christians to do in regard to that? I got interested in that when I was doing a class with Mark Terry and encountered the writings of Paul Bowers. And Paul Bowers was a missionary. I think he's probably still alive. He did his PhD at Cambridge. And he wrote the article on Paul and mission for the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, a very influential scholar. And he argued that Paul nowhere commanded or envisioned ordinary Christians to engage in outward-directed mission. <laughs> and I, I was sort of shocked by that. Again, he's a, a missionary. He can't claim the man's anti-missions. But he, he said that Paul really envisioned the gospel going forth through him and his co-workers, sort of this sort of almost a parachurch apostolic band. And the churches were passive witnesses and they were supportive, but never really expected to, you know, they answer questions of the neighbor, live a good life, but never really expected or commanded to speak the gospel to outsiders or raise up, you know, people to go out in that way. And that did not seem right to me. It didn't seem to fit the evidence fully. So that's what I wrote my dissertation on, really looking at that, looking at some debated passages and arguing that Paul did, in fact, expect the congregations to be outward directed. I think there are many lines of argumentation I take in in the dissertation, But one of them, for example, is suffering. (laughs) If you look at the churches, they're consistently the churches to which Paul writes are almost all of them. He makes a comment about them suffering, suffering for being Christians. And if you're suffering, if outsiders are persecuting you, then you've somehow made your Christian identity known to them in such a way that it's offensive. You know, they're not persecuting Christians because they smell or they don't like the way they dress. They're persecuting Christians because somehow their identity with Christ is offensive to the pagan culture. So you don't have to command people to be witnesses when they're suffering for effectively making their faith known. But there are places, I think in Philippians 2, there's a debate, is it to hold fast the word of life or hold forth the word of life? I think it's hold forth the word of life. The language in Ephesians, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, implies that Paul wants them to take the gospel of peace to others and their other text too. But so that may be more than you want to know about that. No, that's really, that's really helpful. And I appreciate you even kind of talking through some of the history and background that you have personally on that question. I would say a kind of a question related to that. And this has been debated fairly recently in kind of the missions world. Uh, There's a good bit of discussion on it, cross-cultural workers around the world. And that is related to the nature of the book of Acts being either prescriptive or descriptive. Now, not only did I mention in the introduction that you are known for being a Greek scholar, but you also have taught, written on hermeneutics as well. So how do we understand, interpret the Bible? So in your opinion, how would you answer the question if a missionary is asking you, hey, is the book of Acts more prescriptive or descriptive as it relates to mission strategy? Yes. I guess if I had to give a soundbite, I would say it's exemplary descriptive. (laughs) It's descriptive in an exemplary way. So in other words, it's quite clear. There's some parts of Acts, I would say, that we could take from the description that this is what all Christians should do. All Christians should seek 
to be directed by the Spirit. All Christians should allow the Word of God to so influence them and their community that it progresses further out into the world. But in terms of specific dimensions of Paul's mission, you know, when I've gone on mission trips, I don't start by going to the synagogue, right? You know, I don't go into the synagogue and spend a couple of weeks there until they beat me and throw me out. So it seems just wise that he's starting with people where there's some more shared connection, especially with the fulfillment of messianic prophecies to the children of Abraham. It makes sense, but you've seen this probably a lot more than I have. But sometimes I, in my interactions with missionaries, I'll be contacted by one because they'll have a new supervisor over them who's got some new idea, right? And it usually comes from some particular reading of the New Testament that absolutizes or normalizes something in the narrative or in a letter that maybe is taken a little too far. You know, this is what we always have to do. You know, I was thinking about Jesus' instructions to his disciples during his lifetime as he sent him out on mission, go and find a person of peace. And so there's one person in particular, you know, you have to, when you go to a new place, you find the the person of peace. And they make this some sort of like a checklist and until you, and I don't really think the text was intending to do that. So I do think though, that much of the book of Acts is descriptive in an exemplary way. We're to be willing to be persecuted for our faith. We're to be led by the Spirit, fulfilling Jesus' words, taking the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, outward to the farthest expansion, while not neglecting nearby. So I don't know if that's a dodge, but that's kind of, that would be kind of my take on it. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. That's really helpful. I think the next question, I want to kind of try to combine two thoughts. So, you know, one is kind of thinking through. We know at the beginning of the book of Acts, you know, Christ is resurrected. He tells his disciples, we know that the text, you know, Acts 1-8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. But that ends up sort of playing out as almost like a table of contents in many ways for the book of Acts. The gospel unfolds and moves through those areas in that way. At the same time, we know that early in the book of Acts is Pentecost. And so as we think about the geographical expansion of the gospel that we see during this era. I want you to also talk some about maybe the shift that we see in God's mission, kind of post-resurrection in Pentecost. You know, but before in the Old Testament, we don't have the same sort of commands necessarily to, to go outward as much. I mean, there are some things that we see here and there in the Old Testament, but it does seem like there's some sort of shift that takes place with Pentecost. Can you talk some about that in the book of Acts? Yeah, I I agree with you there. There's a danger in answering the question quickly of oversimplification, but I think in general, in the Old Testament, we do see the model of missions is come and see. You know, Israel is to be distinct from the nations, and people are to be drawn to them. And but, But a lot of the language about the nations streaming in and coming to worship the true God, Jews read them as eschatological. You know, there's been studies of of questions about did Jews in the centuries leading up to Christ feel a missionary obligation? Did they send out missionaries? Michael Bird has a good book on this, Crossing Over Sea and Land. And I think the best evidence is they really didn't. They expected, rightly or wrongly, they expected God's going to do something at end times. We don't know how. and, And then Uh, this will be fulfilled. We do see, of course, in the Old Testament, there are the individual cases where God sends out Jonah to Nineveh, you know, but that seems seems to be not typical. The main emphasis is on living distinct from the pagan nations 
in accord with God's revealed holy law and hopefully incorporating in some people like Ruth, the Moabite, these, these people being drawn to the true God of Israel. But I do think you see with Pentecost, with the coming of the Spirit, the direction outwards now. So rather than come and see, go and tell. I think that's true. And that's the day that we live in. We live in the day when the Spirit is propelling the church in witness to the gospel, where the, the gospel is a powerful word that dwells in us and dwells in our communities insofar as it does it's pushing us out paul says in first thessalonians the word sounded forth from you that's that's what we're when we're faithful christians that is what is to be true of us and our communities yeah that's that's good that's a helpful way to kind of think through that the great commission is a call to go And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Last question I have kind of in this section before we move to some kind of quicker hitting type questions. At this point in apostolic era, there is, as far as we can tell, there's no, there's no closed canon, right? So it's, you know, still kind of in the time where Paul is writing these letters and others are writing these letters to the churches. Can you talk some about the the life and practice of the church and and maybe their missionary efforts prior to a closed canon and kind of what that might have looked like? Yeah, it's something we will never experience, <laughs> right? right? It's some, somewhat speculative, right? Because you think, well, how would I live the Christian life if I couldn't open my Bible, if I didn't hear? What if my community that I was in only had the gospel of Mark? And Paul's letter to the Colossians. What would Christian life be like? I don't know exactly, but I'm grateful that we live in the day of the completion of the canon, right? It would be, I mean, if you read if you read the Didache, which is an early church instruction manual, most of your listeners probably know, it's probably from the first century. We don't know exactly, but you can find in there instructions about what do you do when someone comes to your church and they claim they have a message and they want to stay and teach you, you know, give some, some methods for trying to discern whether they're just trying to enrich themselves. You know, it's like if they prophesy food, they can't eat any of it. You know, if they stay over this many days, they're false prophets. They're just looking for money and place to stay. So thankfully, we have a wealth, embarrassing wealth of guidance that God gives us in his word. But it is an interesting, I guess, question to speculate on what life would have been like in these communities. I'll mention it just because it just comes to mind, a, a book I'm using in one of my classes the Lost Letters of Pergamum. I don't know if you've ever seen this book, but it's a fictional series of letters written back and forth between Luke and Antipas, the gentleman who's identified as the martyr in Pergamum in Revelation. But it it sort of tries to picture what would this be like in Pergamum, where there's 
a genuine community, but then it pictures another Christian community that's all syncretistic and it's just about power and status and bringing in, you know, so it tries to picture that side by side confusion. So that's great. I appreciate you mentioning that resource. Just while our listeners are listening, I, I want to also mention a resource that I think is connected with, with you and edited by you. And you mentioned earlier, John Mark Terry, and that is a, a book, Paul's Missionary Methods in His Time and Ours. Just a really helpful volume that really kind of touches on, in many ways, a lot of the things that we're even talking about in this conversation today and a lot of great contributors who have written to the book. So just want to make sure that I mentioned that to our readers. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story related yeah. to that. Yeah. So Craig Keener, who you know, has written so much as a New Testament scholar, he was finishing his PhD at Duke when I was an undergrad. So we, we knew each other from there. And over the years, I've asked him to write things and he's always too busy. He's always too busy. And so I said, Craig, you know, I've got I know you like spiritual warfare. Craig's kind of a little bit charismatic Pentecostal and stuff. I was like, this is important to you. He's like, yeah, it is. I said, would you write a chapter on it? He's like, well, I think I've got an extra day. I could do that. He sent it to me like the next day. So the dude wrote, if you look at it, I mean, it's it's like a well footnoted, detailed chapter, just like in a day. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that's funny. Right. That's good. I, I want to switch to some rapid fire questions here. I want to start with maybe two or three things that you think we can learn from the apostolic missions era. Hmm. I think we can learn that, one, we should care about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think COVID has been bad for missions consciousness. I don't know about you, but I think it's caused sort of an inward focus many times in the churches, intrafighting, obsession with political issues or whatever, rather than really being about taking the gospel to the end of it. So it's, it's the apostolic, the teaching of the apostles about mission should recalibrate us. We should care about it. this. Should be a big deal. This is should be a big big issue that we're praying about, that we're funding, that we're going. Right. So number one, it's a priority. Two, I would say reliance on the Holy Spirit. There's a great emphasis on you know if you just go through the Book of Acts and highlight Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. Also, there's a great emphasis on the power of the gospel, especially in Paul's letters. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe." And so. In Acts, you know, I, I do think Acts is organized with those six framing brackets, the spirit emphasis on the role of the spirit, and then the bracket closes with the, the word of God growing and prospering, advancing. And so I think, again, a theology of trusting in the power of God's word ties in with an Old Testament, the power of God's words, you know, like a fire, like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. It's like rain that goes forth and produces fruit to grow from the, the soil. And so a trust and reliance on the power of God's word and thus an emphasis on conveying it faithfully and winsomely to non-believers. So those are some things that come to mind. Yeah. yeah, that's that's really helpful. What about a best book or a book that you would encourage our listeners to grab, to read that's related to mission in this era? Yeah. Well, the standard work the most extensive work on early Christian apostolic mission, everyone would agree probably is Eckhart Schnabel's Early Christian Mission, which oh, so, oh, I don't know if I can lift both volumes at what. No, I'm just kidding. But they're quite large, right? And the pages are numbered through, you know, it doesn't restart in the second volume. So we could we could give a prize to the person who could guess how many pages it is, but 1928. 
So not many people are going to sit down and read that, but it, it is quite extensive, thorough, and well done. One of our former faculty members here who's, who's now at Samford, J.D. Payne, wrote a delightful little book here, Theology of Mission, A Concise Biblical Theology. I think it's really nicely written. It's really clear. It's short. Usually people will read shorter books. I mean, it's about 150 pages or so. So I think that's a great book on just tracing the theme of mission through the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament and going all the way to Revelation. If you want to double the sales of my published dissertation for the last year, you could buy one copy (laughs) of Paul's understanding of the church's mission. I'm kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek there, of course. But yeah, it's answering the question, what did Paul expect churches to do? The churches to which he wrote, the churches he founded to do in regard to mission. So, you know, these books like this hardly sell any at all, you know. But it was several years after I published it, I got a notice, you've gotten enough royalties now, we're going to send you, you know, a check. Because it had to get, I think, above 50 pounds, which is about like $60, right? So it got up to 50 pounds. So then, then they wanted my bank number. Well, then then the bank charges me like an international wire fee. <laughs> so I get like 20 bucks or something, you know, I don't know. So anyway, <laughs> that's awesome. But we're not in it for the money. That's but, right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, those are those are helpful. I think those are some good resources. One thing I would mention too, related to, you mentioned Schnabel. He also has written a book that is just on Paul called Paul the Missionary that also could be kind of a helpful volume if you're not ready to dive into the 1900 page volume. So two volumes. All right. You're a Greek guy. You love the Greek language. You love teaching it. You're effective at it. Why is learning the Greek language? Why would you say it's important for aspiring missionaries today? Yeah, I think anyone who studies the Bible, who love, who's a Christian, anyone who's a Christian eventually gets to a point where they feel like their English translation is a slight bit of a barrier to them. You know, maybe they have multiple English translations and they differ and they want to go deeper. They want to know God. It's really about knowing God and knowing his word and being confident in that word. I do think, though, there are missionary settings where knowing the original languages can be especially helpful. I have never been to Indonesia, but a student told me that in Indonesia, when you buy the New Testament, many times it will have Bahasa on one page and then the Greek New Testament on the other. The reason being the people coming from a Muslim background are expecting a holy book to have an ancient language, like they're used to seeing Arabic and then their modern language. And so here this shows them, look, this is not some modern book. This is an ancient book, and it's an authoritative book. We would say the authoritative book. And so there are certain settings like that or where people ask questions. You want to be able, you know, in a new setting to be able to, to answer some of the questions that may have related to translation. Obviously, I think about our recent graduates, David and Stacy Hare. I don't know if you know them, but you should you should have them on your podcast if you they're they're back in town now, but they've been living in West Africa and they're using Greek and Hebrew to translate the Bible into a new new language that has never been written before. So they had to come up with an alphabet. Now they're translating it into that language. But ultimately it's a study of the Greek and Hebrew is because we believe God inspired the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament. He didn't inspire the King, He didn't inspire the King James Version, you know, the Holy Spirit giving the exact words for people to write down. He inspired the Greek and Hebrew. And so we we want to be as close to the word of God as possible to understand it rightly, to be able to teach it authoritatively and accurately. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Last question. 
mission in this apostolic era was largely concentrated in the Mediterranean world. Today, we know that we kind of fast forward 2000 years, we know there's very little church presence in that same region. So you think about some of the regions of North Africa, the Middle East, some of these kinds of places. How would you encourage missionaries who are serving in those regions today? What are maybe one or two things you might say to them? Hmm. Well, when you asked that, it reminded me of how encouraged I've been by spending some time with some of them, you know, just to hear what can't always be shared in the public, in the news or in a public way, but how God is working, you know, and how he's saving people. I'm thinking about one particular very dangerous country. I was teaching for the seminary overseas, and so I had students from all these different countries. And I'm leaving, I won't name what this country is, but it's a very dangerous place. And I talked to him, I said, hey, you know, I know missionaries work places for all their life and see, you know, no converts, one convert in the places like you are, but what what do you, what's going on? And he said, I know of 50 new converts in my sphere of influence. I was like, man, that's awesome. I love hearing that. You know, and I think I think when we read, I mean, you read read the book of Acts, we're talking about you see persecution. <laughs> Sometimes they have to run out of town. Sometimes they're beaten, but God is working and he gives them courage and joy. Joy, rejoicing to be persecuted amazingly, right? So reading the Bible, reading the stories of the early Christians, I think will encourage the modern day missionaries to be faithful, to endure suffering, and to look to see what the Spirit does in the hearts of people. Amen. Amen. Rob, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. I enjoyed it, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. And thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.